0: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McHour here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, our first ever 30 Under 30, Interface Tries to Take Back the Climate, What's the State of the Sustainability Profession, and I've Got a New Book, It's all about me, this week on 350. It's June 10th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Here with me, as always, is Green Biz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren.
1: Hey, Joel. How's it going?
0: You know, it's going okay. This is... Uh, the first week in god for a long time that we didn't have like some crashing you know big program that thing we were doing you know we had last week was sem and the clean energy ministerial talk about that in a second and i don't know just been a lot of stuff going on and
1: you know now we reap the rewards we're going to hear from some of our 30 under 30 honorees who um have been up on our site for a little while now but get to know them a little better uh and yeah you're right i mean definitely still have a little bit of a sim hangover i would say we're about to start publishing some cool videos we have with folks like tom steyer and michael Brune, who's ahead head of the sierra club um so looking forward to that
0: yeah you did an interview with joan mcnaughton the ahead of the world energy council i talked to uh Graham Richards, the head of the Advanced Energy Economy, and Don, Dan Kamen, uh, our friend up in Berkeley who's uh, started the Renewable Energy Lab. We had some great interviews, and we'll, we'll be, as you said, rolling those out. But before we do that, let's roll out the Week in Review.
1: of the cool stories we had to start off this week was from Mark Glick, who is the administrator at the Hawaii State Energy Office, and the title of the piece was, What the Mainland Can Learn from Hawaii's Road to 100% Renewables. So this is all part of a much bigger story that uh, we've obviously been talking about on the podcast since we're heading to Honolulu later this month for Verge, uh, our event that's going to be looking at the intersection of technology and sustainability, specifically in this very interesting context of an island where you've got these really high energy prices and obviously... Some very cool natural resources you could be using in this pursuit. Um, But, Joel, I understand you actually caught up with some of the people in Utah, in Hawaii.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, Mark Glick is our partner. He's the guy who basically brought the Verge, asked to bring the Verge conference over to Hawaii. Uh, He uh, is responsible for seeing this uh, state mandate to get to 100% renewable by 2045. And and the conference is really the kickoff of, uh, since the governor signed that law last year, This is the event that's sort of bringing together the ecosystem in Hawaii and a lot of people from the mainland and from Asia as well uh, to talk about, well, how do we do that? Because it's not that simple. I had a uh, conversation uh, in preparation for uh, one of the early panels in the early uh, plenary sessions uh, with Alan Oshima, who's the president and CEO of of Helco, the Hawaii electric company, and uh, uh, Hermina Morita, who is uh, formerly the chair of the Hawaii PUC the public utilities commission and it's really interesting because it's uh the the issues the complexity uh it's not that simple you know to say yay let's just do 100% renewables uh because first of all there's the question is it centralized or decentralized how much is the utility involved there's this push you know to to go to distributed and the utility saying but wait you know that actually Uh, isn't optimal. It actually pessimizes the system in a number of ways in terms of our ability to deliver reliable power. And then you throw storage in. And it's fascinating. And I think, Lauren, it's going to have implications for uh, mainlanders and, and others about what happens when we try to dramatically grow the clean energy economy.
1: i mm-hmm. I'm also interested in the discussion that's going on around other sources of emissions besides power like transportation being a big one, a lot of reliance on driving there. Um
0: because yeah, the 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 100% renewable commitment isn't just about electricity there, it's about it's about fuels as well as about uh, power. So uh that's that's another really interesting part because how do you do that in terms of natural gas or liquid natural gas? It, it, should that be a part of it or not? That's one certainly debate in electrification, which gets back to the grid for electric vehicles, electric trucks, everything else. That's it's It's fascinating what's going on and how that Hawaii is becoming – Really, the 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 test bed for this, what we you know sort of been calling that postcard from the future.
1: Mm-hmm. And when it comes to climate solutions, uh, some of our friends over in Europe, a group called Sustainia, a really interesting think tank that works specifically on solutions to climate issues, came out with a, an annual report they do called the Sustainia One Hundred this week.
0: So this is the group that uh, launched this in 2012 at the Rio Plus Twenty event. Um, I was there, and 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 they giving out. Uh, uh really looking at sustainable innovation and what are the opportunity technology solutions for tomorrow so what were some of the examples this year
1: Yeah so there were four sort of primary areas and it, what interested me was sort of how they're taking ideas you hear about a lot like cities smart cities we know being one big area but then combining that with uh public health so it's sort of looking at an unconventional way that um curbing the environmental footprints of cities is, yes, good for climate, but can also improve, uh, you know, like we hear all the time about asthma and different rates of health disorders that you get with these pollution problems. Um, Another one was this idea of data for the people by the people, so that's sort of how much we're going to be able to make good on all this talk about open data and open source projects, so sort of pushing that to the next front. Um, Disrupting the grid, another big one that places like Hawaii at the forefront of it and the last one, Joel, I know, is a pet of yours of late, which is making money from unlikely materials. Mm,
0: yeah, that was part of a story we'll get to in a minute from Interface. But I'm glad uh, that the, the health thing is there because that's something we're hearing a lot more about, which is which is ha- the public health aspects of climate change, and of course, so many other environmental issues, and that that uh, that may be uh, a better entry point for a lot of people who who, who are less personally concerned or affected by the climate um, uh, but still need to get engaged somehow and the public health aspect of this is i think going to be a growing conversation i mean certainly with uh you know disease uh, you know vectors and and maybe even the zika virus in mm-hmm. brazil how much of that has to do with changing climate we don't really know but i think uh, some of these things will be start to become uh, part of the conversation so i'm glad is taking that on and they also they put out a book isn't that right-
1: mm-hmm. yeah i i have the digital version but it's a it's a meaty publication we link to it in the story so you can check it out definitely worth perusing and i think it is also interesting there's definitely an emphasis like pulling in the threads such as public health on sort of combining the social with the environmental being a little more interdisciplinary instead of getting stuck in focusing narrowly on one part of the challenges that we face And speaking of big challenges, we had a very interesting book excerpt on the site this week (laughs) from someone who might be sitting right next to me right now. Yeah,
0: well, so this is it. uh, Actually, next week is the pub date for the book that I've co-authored with uh, Mark Puck Mickleby and uh, Patrick Doherty called the new grand strategy, subtitled "Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century." And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But this is uh, the short version: is this is a business plan for America, born at the Pentagon, that embeds sustainability as a national strategic imperative, and tells how we've used something called grand strategy as a, at various times in our history, to leverage our economy to take on the big challenges that we face, the existential challenges of the time, like fighting fascism or containing communists, because we knew we didn't want to take on the Soviets in the battlefield. We wanted to contain them militarily and outcompete them economically. And it's amazing, I learned in this book, how much of America's economy is tied to our foreign policy and our strategic goals in the the country. And now the big existential challenge is, is what we call global unsustainability. And it's not just environment. We can talk about that a little bit more next week. So we ran an excerpt this week, which is is really uh, adapted from the preface of the prologue of the book, which kind of tells the backstory of of how this book uh, started at the Pentagon and how this Marine colonel and Navy captain were summoned to the Pentagon in 2009 by Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and asked to come up with a vision for America and how that led eventually to us writing this book. And my meeting Puck on stage at one of our Verge conferences, uh, the former Marine, Uh, And, um, you know, as they say in Hollywood, hijinks ensue. No, I mean, this Mm -hmm. is the book ensued, actually. And it's really cool. I'm really excited about this. This is, uh, uh, among other things, kind of what I call the adult conversation about America that we should be having this election year and aren't. And so uh, I look forward to talking about that more, I think, next week when we get uh, just after the book comes out. But in the meantime, check out uh, the prologue that we published on uh, Wednesday, and you'll get a little flavor of it
1: yeah grand strategy all very stately excited to talk about it more yeah So if you've been poking around greenbiz.com in the last couple of weeks, you've probably noticed a big feature that we rolled out after the Memorial Day holiday, and that was our first ever 30 under 30. So, Joel, I know you were very involved from the beginning in sort of how we were going about this, how we were going to make it different from the probably 30 other 30 (laughs) under 30s that are out there. Um, So what was the idea here for you?
0: Well, it was the same as all of them in the the sense of honoring uh, sort of young up-and-coming leaders. In this case, we were looking for individuals who are making a difference in the world of sustainable business, whether they work in a company or in an NGO or government, wherever, and young people that have demonstrated leadership qualities in their organizations or their sectors or in the wider world of business, and finding a diversity of them in terms of uh, large companies, small companies, geography, non uh, nonprofits cities, uh, uh, NGOs and, and and others, but again, those that impact companies. And so, um, you know, in general, we wanted to represent the full potential of sustainability of young people and sustainability to transform companies, consumers, uh, systems of commerce and all of that
1: yeah it was cool talking to a few of them Uh, one guy I had talked to who actually works for the city of Orlando he's the mayor's senior energy advisor whose name is Chris Castro uh, has actually been to the UN a couple of times talking about some of this stuff Uh, so it's pretty crazy to see what all these 20 somethings are up to so
0: was uh, Jill Leonard uh, from uh, CA Technologies a picture of her is in in the general assembly room I believe so yeah there's a a lot of uh, UN showed up in this a few times
1: Mm-hmm. And you've got the diversity of industries you mentioned. I talked to uh, one girl who's very focused on transportation, a guy up in Seattle who's focused on buildings. Uh, So for, for our perspective, getting to interview them, it was cool to see sort of who's at the forefront in each of these different sectors.
0: And you were asking them some, some kind of interesting questions. And it was, it, it, by the way, this was the entire uh, editorial team, Sarah Malconian, uh managing editor Elsa Wenzel, a senior writer, Heather Clancy, and Barbara Grady and uh and of course you Lauren um did these interviews so you had this chance to each talk with them and and, and what what were some of the big questions you're asking
1: So, one of the big things was just sort of uh, how do you think about the job you're doing in the context of climate change becoming a much bigger deal in the mainstream? Obviously, we're a couple months out from the Paris climate talks. Um, These people, a lot of them, are growing up in a generation where climate change was on their curriculum and school and those sorts of things. So, it was interesting to hear their thoughts on that. And definitely, I think a lot of them are trying to sort of live up to that idea of being the generation that sort of really thrust these issues into the business mainstream as well.
0: So let's listen to some clips of what they had to say.
1: If there's anything I've learned in my career, it's that the focal point really needs to be
2: on business strategy, less on sustainability. And if you get the right sustainability-minded people in positions of strategy, I think that's when we'll start to see uh, the needle move. I think that the younger 30, under 30 voice is one that is committed to radical hope and optimism in a way that we haven't seen in the space, especially
1: in the corporate space, and I think that that's a breath of fresh air for both the existing corporate structures and also the consumers. They're feeling much more connected to brands. They're understanding vision, mission, and wanting to be a part of it. So it's exciting to see the brand space change.
3: Companies are realizing, organizations are really realizing how much their employees care about sustainability as a whole and how much of a difference it can make not just to their shareholders, but mm-hmm. to their employees and to, to their metrics and productivity. And it's, it's more of, it's across the board. The aspect that interested me the most was the interdisciplinary nature and looking at problems from a more holistic perspective, you know, working with stakeholders to address complex issues. Working at Utility, we're definitely in a time of a lot of rapid change with distributed energy. So it's really um, you know, an interesting time learning about different technologies and how those can be implemented.
1: I think the, the power of a social mission is so strong. And then if you look at all of the research on millennials in particular, my generation really wants all of the products we purchase to have a story and we want that story to be a story of the product helping to create, you know, something that is socially and environmentally impactful um, and create a positive impact. It's my hope that at some point we will get
2: companies to move social impact out of like, oh, you know, CSR, this is something we do for marketing and really into their DNA of this is something something that we fundamentally have to do as a company if we want to stay competitive.
3: These are not easy issues. there are issues that make people uncomfortable, but they need to be addressed because that's the only way that in the long term, these industries are going to effectively grow and move us away from the use of fossil fuels by nature. I'm an optimistic person, and I think you know it's slow, often you know tedious work, but it's so important, and you know this is this is a marathon that we're doing, and I think that it's, it, you know it has to be viewed that way because incrementally we're making huge progress. We've already had an impact.
2: Measurement in general is not new to farmers, but a lot of these metrics are new to them. Greenhouse gas emissions is definitely something new. And so a part of that is not only measuring that, but also providing the context around it. Like why, why are we measuring this? And where are those sources coming from? And how does that tie into their operation? I mean, if they can measure it, they're going to learn how to manage it better. And that kind of improvement and innovation over time is something that has been really incredible for me to see. I actually think there's a lot of power in using sustainability as a lens for how we think about how we operate as businesses, as people, Mm -hmm. as communities, as municipalities. It has all those tenets, right? It's about protecting resources, but promoting health and helping people. It's it's a way to think about how we collaborate in a more effective, and efficient, and meaningful way. I'm really excited that it's becoming a priority on the agenda, um, mm-hmm. and I think it has the potential to really, to really grow and become a mindset and to become a way that people do business and think about how they govern. Um, so I'm excited. It's, that's all to say that it's an exciting time for our field.
1: So that was a quick introduction to the 2016 class of our GreenBiz 30 Under 30 honorees. You just heard from Kelly Behrend with the carpooling startup Ride, Sasha Calder with Josie Moran Cosmetics, Divya Natarajan with Palladino & Co., Jeffrey Jennings with Arizona Public Service, Lisa Curtis from Cooley Cooley Foods, David Poritz with Equitable Origin, Ty Ullman with Lando Lakes, and Janelle Heslop from Veolia.
0: It's also so inspiring. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. We were getting, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of people who are looking to, how do I submit for next year? And we will be doing this next year. Look for an announcement in the coming months about a partner we're going to be engaging with for next year's 30 Under 30 that's going to take this globally. And so we'll be sourcing for our up-and-coming young sustainable business leaders from all over the world
1: in the meantime if you do have a burning nomination you want to get in front of us feel free to send us a note at submit at
0: One of the uh, things we did this past week was we had a webcast and the release of uh, our State of the Profession report. This is the report that we do every once in a while uh, by uh, Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies. And this year with the uh, partnership of Ellen Weinreb from the we- CEO of the Weinreb Group to look at the sustainability profession. Uh, how What people do, where they report, how they got their job, how much they make. It's pretty interesting stuff. We did a webcast. On that on Tuesday which you can also listen to uh, the archived edition and uh, here's a little taste
4: overview of our survey demographics Um, this year we had 996 respondents so we need to get that four more people to to break that you know triple digit for next year 45% of the respondents have over a billion dollars in revenue and we really use this as a lot of the the input to the report. Our, most of our results, unless we say something otherwise, focus on that billion-dollar and larger organization.
2: I've done research on, on the Title Chief Sustainability Officer and identified what years those people were named. And so 2011 was the year for peak CSO. Um, And now, CSOs are being replaced, so the company might be on their second or third CSO. But 2011 was that year where they, 28 to 2011 is where companies were naming their first CSO.
4: We also wanted to look at, you know, um, how important is it to have an engaged CEO? So this is the first time we've asked this question in the report. It's always sort of a cliche to that, that people will say, well, you know, um it'd be great our program's success would depend upon engaging the CEO or engaging the C suite. Um, you know, and I think everyone would like a highly visible CEO promoting their program like Paul Pullman of Unilever or Yvonne Chenard at Patagonia. But um one of the things that we saw was that Lack of CEO support doesn't seem to be much of a barrier for most large organizations. We asked our panelists to rate the level of CEO engagement at their organization on a scale from one, which was openly dismissive, to seven, you know, owns it, very engaged. And 70% of the respondents, right, their CEOs is somewhere between interested, not a high priority, who owns it very engaged so it doesn't really feel like the ceo is a barrier to um to the programs
1: jobs 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 always the topic people want to read about so be sure to check that out on greenbiz.com and we'll be bringing you more in future stories
0: We had a little bit of an exclue, as they say in the trade, an exclusive story this week uh, about Interface, the uh, iconic and iconoclastic carpet company based in Atlanta. Uh, they're about to put out uh, sort of a new mission, and that's no small thing because uh, their first mission, which they did in the late 90s called Mission Zero, uh, you know, was sort of uh, bold and audacious at the time, which was to be the first company that by its deeds shows the entire industrial world what sustainability is in all its dimensions, people, process, product, place, and profits, and doing this by 2020. And in doing so, will become restorative through the power of influence. That was 20 years ago, almost, and uh, pretty amazing uh, and audacious. And they, of course, they had no idea how to do it.
1: Yeah, how how do you measure or sort of even attempt to quantify something like that?
0: Well, that was the challenge that Ray Anderson, their their founder, and uh, unfortunately passed away in 2011, set out to do, and he, he called it Mount Sustainability, and there were seven faces or fronts, and each one of those was a different metric, and, and he was talking about this stuff. I remember uh, I met him in about 96, so not uh, just about that time that he was putting that out there and uh you know we all looked at him a little bit you know like the RCA dog kind of cockeyed, like, like <laughs> huh, what what huh? and and they put together this dream team of of sort of the kind of all the rock stars of the day in sustainable business there was paul hawken who uh helped uh inspire ray anderson to begin with uh with his book the ecology of commerce uh uh, Bill Browning, who was a devotee of Buckminster Fuller, uh, uh, David Brower, the found the head of the Sierra Club at the time, and anyway, John Picard, Bill McDonough, Amory Lovins, Hunter Lovins, and and a bunch of others, and and they would meet with them, and they they worked out metrics for each of these things. How do you? you know, measure uh, a lot of things that frankly weren't measured.
1: So what are we actually talking about in terms of operations? Are they focused on waste, energy, material use? What's sort of the focus? Yes. Um,
0: (laughs) And in fact, today they're forecasting that by 2020 they will have cut their energy use by 50% for everything that they make. They'll be powering their operations 87% through renewable energy, uh, cut their water intake, new water, fresh water by 90%, reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 95%, and their overall carbon footprint by 80%, send nothing to landfills, and source 95% of their materials from either recycled or bio-based resources
1: so actually making all the circular economy stuff a reality in some ways
0: well they've been uh, on that quest for a long time they they tried and didn't really succeed they created this evergreen lease uh, back in the 90s where they were going to rather than selling carpet they were going to be leasing flooring services so they got to, to keep the ownership of the carpet tiles that they sell and installed in people's um, offices and 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 lease the the services, which is uh, comfort underfoot and acoustics and beauty and all the other. They had like eleven attributes or something. Um, and and then they they can re- retain the ownership. And so they wanted to own these things because they wanted to turn what had typically been a liability at the unused carpet into an asset. So they could separate the the nylon from the backing and then turn the nylon back into new nylon and make more carpet. And therefore, have their customers be, become their supply chain.
1: And given that they've been thinking about a lot of these sort of business model evolutions and uh, sort of pushing the boundaries on their specific sustainability priorities, where do they go from here?
0: Well, that's the, this new mission. It's called Climate Take Back.
1: What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's a good
0: question. <laughs> well, I wrote a 5,000 word article on <laughs> describing it. But uh, there's four key commitments. And keep in mind that these are going to sound as audacious today as the things they committed to were in 1997 number one we will bring carbon home and reverse climate change number two we will create supply chains that benefit all life three we will make factories that are like forests and four we will transform dispersed materials into products and goodness
1: so there's a lot to unpack there you've got climate change biomimicry supply chains what were some of the most interesting takeaways for you
0: well, The Factories as Forest is, is an interesting one. Um, and um, that's one that really goes, as you said, biomimicry right to the heart of something that Janine Benyus, who wrote the book Biomimicry and coined that term. And I interviewed Janine for this story. And uh, she told me about this project that they're doing uh, at an interface factory in Australia, New South Wales, uh, to be exact. Uh, uh, the, what they do with, with this Factories as Forests, the, the idea is how do you... Uh, replicate the ecological services, nature services that were uh, available on the land before the factory was there? And how do you replicate those? So the things like um, the climate control and animal habitat, temperature cooling, nitrogen cycling, carb- carbon sequestration, water storage, and purification, these are all things that that land did and, and most land does uh, it, you know, in its virgin state. And so how do you bring those back?
5: So we're starting in Minto, Australia, and what we're saying is that um, we're going to come up with a set of ecological performance metrics, ecological performance standards (EPS), we call it, um, for the factory. So the factory, um, the factory itself, the site, the metabolism of the factory should produce the same level of a certain set of ecosystem services as what would be growing there if that they weren't there, okay? So what we've done is we've gone and we've found at this point what kind of an ecological land type it is, and it's a river flat eucalypt forest. It would be there, okay? So what we've got, what we're working with is a 5.7 hectare site. It is mostly a big factory building with a white roof, it's got a parking lot. It's got a buried stream underneath of it. Um, and that's about it. And so what we're saying is, okay, 5.7 hectares. Let's go to the forest next door. Let's go to the, to the, uh, river flat eucalypt forest and let's look at what ecosystem services are being produced. Before we did that, we actually said, what are the most important ecological processes in that place? What are the keys to resilience? And, One of the things – and that's where – that's how we get our – we prioritize our ecosystem services. So we found out that, for instance, nutrient cycling was very, very important in that particular place. Um, And so was um, water management because a lot of what keeps it healthy is is um, intermittent, you know, um, movement of water through that riparian zone. But anyway, water management, water storage – um, water purification and then this, this idea of a constant nutrient cycle in which we then can take those two things and say, okay, that's what's really, really important. We also look at what's important for interfaces business and also for the people on the site in the neighborhood, what's important. So we're, we're at this next step where we're going to come up with how much water they need to store, how much water they should be purifying as part of their uh, process there um, per per hectare a per hectare amount, how much carbon they should be sequestering right um, nitrogen cycling the, these these sorts of things that are happening on that site, and then we'll move out from that there's going to be other ecosystem services what it's going to look like when it it gets finished is a set of design interventions that they do in order to try to make that site produce ecosystem services. So right now, if you can imagine what they've got is they don't have any water uh storage capability on site. They don't have any water purification. You know, they've got basically, you know, all these surfaces. I think you're going to be seeing something like Permeable pavement being in the parking lot, far less parking on site. You're going to be seeing a rewilding of that site. You're going to probably see, you know, the, the, perhaps the, uh, that part of the stream being daylighted, both, uh, with the infrastructure, like the permeable pavement and with the ecostructure, like planting of trees, planting of vegetation, uh, maybe a green roof. You're going to wind up having a place that I'm envisioning employees having picnics there every lunch hour. I'm envisioning people wanting to, um, adopting a river flat eucalypt forest nearby and wanting to have their community events there, you know, their kids' birthdays there. And eventually it being a nice enough place at the facility that, You'll actually want to do it there. It's crazy to think about now because it's sitting in the middle of a very, a normal industrial park kind of a place Mm -hmm. where there's factory after factory after factory and nobody has any sense that they're part of a watershed.
0: It's really interesting stuff and I have to say, you know, pretty cutting edge, but they think they can do it. And it may take, they recognize it may take a decade or so for any of these factories to actually, for them to be able to replicate nature services at any one of these locations. But they're in it for the long haul.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about how the higher ups at the company are thinking about this.
0: Yeah, I interviewed their COO, Jay Gould, and their head of uh, supply chain and their head of their business in Europe and their chief sustainability person. And, you know, they're, they're in it to win it. I mean, they these guys have, have been serious about this for a long, long time. I and mean, Jay Gould's only been there since the beginning of last year. But, you know, he really gets a lot of credit from the way, uh, from what I understand, and the story was told about really pushing the company to to take on and and announce these things uh, uh, even earlier than they may have been ready to do just to put it out there that this is what we want to be next so here's what Jay Gould had to say
3: personally as I think about launching a new mission you know I have three thoughts that come to mind And, and the first is frankly concern because as the president of an organization to go public with such an audacious goal it's a little bit scary I mean there's not a roadmap for this so not only is the interface credibility on the line, so I mean personally, I'm completely vested in this. The second, the second word that comes to mind though is 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 courage, because you know as I said, I think the world needs us now more than ever, and it's with that challenge, you know, what a deep crisis the world is that we need to do this. But the last word, and, and I just used it a couple minutes ago, which is confidence. And the last one might sound a little surprising and, and frankly, maybe a little cocky. And I don't mean it to come across that way, but confidence because look at what we've done over the last 22 years. I, I mean, it's really amazing that a little, a little carpet company could have the kind of impact that I really do believe that we have, have had. I, I, you know, I think we're, we're going to go through an exploration process. I mean, we're, real, I mean, we're kicking this off. About starting to talk about the new mission, because we want to attract others to join us to help build out call this is this is the analogy to raise seven fronts. I think these are right, but I think over the next six or nine months we're going to ask others to help us build this out even in more depth. so probably the real launch of this is maybe a year away as we get more detail to it. But we don't we want to start the conversation today. We want to boldly set a new mission out for the company to be able to do this. and And really, you know the mission isn't we will change the world. The mission is really that we will demonstrate that we can reverse the impact of climate change by bringing carbon home, and we want to be able to scale that to the point where it actually does reverse the amount of carbon in the atmosphere.
0: To be frank, the company needed to make a a little bit of a splash. They had sort of lost their edge. They had been seen as the just... Leader far and away of uh, in industrial companies on sustainability, and after their founder uh, Ray Anderson died uh, in in 2011, they got a little bit quiet. And as their CMO who joined in 2013 said, they felt like they're a little bit still in mourning for a while. They didn't quite know how to to face the public in in at least in a sustainability marketing way. Aaron Miesen, the vice president for sustainability, said that the company was really pushed to talk about these things in a a bold way by a lot of their employees and, and business partners.
2: There's a growing aspiration in the company to really, really want to talk about climate change publicly. And that really scares me because it is an issue that is so divisive and has so many different stakeholders who think so many different things that I worry that we can effectively make a difference. Because it's one thing to do it in our own business and to say, okay, let's declare that the next mission is about mission X. And a big piece of that is reversing climate change. And, you know, we're going to do that through factories as a forest, heavy sequestration targets there. We're going to do it through the materials we use in products, maybe the products themselves, sequestering carbon you know, we're going to build that into the other pieces. I don't worry about our ability to do it at Interface, but can we really have an influence on this broader conversation around climate change? And are we ready to respond to really negative people? Because for 22 years, for the most part, we've enjoyed a lot of love and a lot of credibility. And that that is because of the fact that we are authentic and real and we were an early pioneer and there's a halo and all of that. But I worry that what happens if we say we really want to take on this big issue and if, it, if no other business is willing to have a challenging conversation about not just reducing but going well beyond that to setting the bar at reversing. There's a scientific argument there about whether or not we can even do it. So we could get stuck in that debate and have a bunch of people get all over us. The the second is we're a tiny company, and this could be completely misinterpreted as a tiny company who just wants to have a really provocative marketing campaign, but they're not going to really do anything and they can't really have an impact. There's that track. Like It makes me nervous. That, that we might have to deal with all of that. But at the same time, we feel pretty strongly that there isn't a conversation happening about the fact that we can reverse climate change and what business's role is and who the hell is going to talk about that.
0: And um this is seems to be doing the trick. Uh uh Paul Hawken and, and Janine Benius uh were brought by the company to Lisbon and Phuket, uh, Thailand and to Atlanta for th- three big sales meetings and that to help sort of articulate this. They're both members of the interface dream team. And um they said the response was amazing that 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 the and, and, and Aaron Mizen, the chief sustainability officer, told me that. The employees and partners of the company pushed them to do something that was audacious today as Mission Zero was in 1997. So uh, Paul told me, uh, you know, the, the whole meme, the whole vibe at these sales meetings was that the salespeople were saying, we're back.
1: Let's switch gears now to take a look at the week ahead. Joining me now is GreenBiz.com Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. Hi. (laughs) How's it going? Not bad. How about you? Good, good. So what have we got going on?
2: Well, senior writer Mike Hauer is taking a closer look at 10 cool apps that aim to help businesses, and consumers alike expand the use of solar and wind energy. And ahead of our Verge Hawaii events later this month, senior writer Barbara Grady is doing a deep dive into the island's grand experiments in the ag-energy nexus. So how can the state become self-sufficient in producing both energy and food? It's all related. Senior writer Heather Clancy has more on Hawaii, but this time about wind turbines and other emerging ways to harness ocean energy.
1: Awesome. Sounds like we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. We also have some things cooking in the way of events. In addition to Verge Hawaii, which you just mentioned, that's coming up June 21st through 23rd in Honolulu. If anyone's looking for a little getaway, we've got a couple of free webcasts. On June 15th, we'll be looking at the topic of sustainability meets mobility inside Ford's strategic shift Uh, And then on June 28th, we'll look at putting innovation to work within employee sustainability initiatives. So you can get more information about all of this by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You'll find, as always, the links to all the organizations and stories and events and videos and audios and everything else. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Kudos as always to podcast director Saraya Melconian send us your feedback, ideas, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com, and we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz350. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Until next time, have a great day.